thing I, I kind of had in my mind to ask you is, did, were you ever a normal drinker? Oh, yeah, I was. Okay. In the early days, I could uh, I could drink appropriately as to time, place, and amount. <laughs> I could start and I could cut it off <clears throat> without even thinking twice about it. Um, <clears throat> it didn't cause me any problems and didn't cause me any trouble. You know, I, I did that for many years. I think that probably scares the bejesus out of some people to hear that, that you could be a normal drinker and then become not a normal drinker. You know what I mean? Well, it wasn't hard. <laughs> <laughs> it can be done. I, I, I oh, know. yeah. I'm living proof of that. But uh, but don't you hear, like, sometimes people say, I was an alcoholic from the time the first time I ever oh, yeah. drank? I hear that. You know, I hear that all the time. Alcoholic from the first drink, blackout yeah. drinker from the yeah. first drink. Yeah. But not the case with you? No. <clears throat> no, for... Um, well, I did the usual ritual teenage drinking in the backseat of a car, roaring around the countryside out here. Yeah. When I was, you know, between the ages of 16 and 18. And then the ritualistic stuff in college. You know, I won't say that I never got drunk in college. I did. But it was pretty much intentional. Yeah. There, wasn't accident, there was nothing accidental about it. Right. And then I went on to law school, and <clears throat> the demands on my time were so great that I rarely drank at all. Hmm. If, I, if I drank at all, it was usually on the weekends. And then just a few. Mm -hmm. No big mm -hmm. deal. And mm -hmm. I could shut it off or turn it on pretty much at will mm -hmm. uh, without without any trouble. It yeah, was, it was after law school that things picked up. That's where that's where things picked up. Was was drinking part of your um, culture or your um, your 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 family's way of doing things? I mean, was it just sort of a built-in thing, or was it not? Well, I grew up in the south side of Chicago the first thirteen years. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, we were in a uh, parish called St. Carthage. It was an Irish bishop, and the, the uh, church was very Irish, and mm. drinking was not merely accepted, it was expected. <laughs> Heavy drinking was accepted. Yeah. It was only got, it only got frowned on when you couldn't put uh, rent money on the table or <clears throat> regular meals to, for the family. Then, then it was looked down upon as being something bad, but it, alcohol was a part of the culture growing up. My did parents drank. Did that, uh, did that, was that an impact? I mean, was that something that... How would you say that affected you? I would say that it affected me by making alcohol basically a part of my life, part of the background. Like it was Bill. no big deal to pick up a drink when I did. Yeah. Which was when? 16. Hmm. A beer in the back of a car. <laughs> you remember the brand? Oh, yes. <laughs> what we were, was it? We were gentlemen of breeding distinction. And sophistication. Oh, then it had to be Schlitz. No, it was Blatz. Blatz. A Chicago. What would a Chicago boy be with? <laughs> and you passed it around? Hell no. <laughs> we, we each had one. Okay. Yeah, Blatz. They even make Blatz anymore? Oh no. Uh -huh. I think it. I think that's why I have to wear glasses. <laughs> it killed too many people. They took it off the market. <laughs> yeah, right. Could you get that at the ballpark? Did they sell it at the ballpark or? <laughs> I think they did at one point in time. Um, there was a time when they uh, used to broadcast the radio, the television feed live into the stadium. Yeah. And those were the days when <clears throat> people could drink beer on TV during an ad. And they had, <laughs> they had Brickhouse's sidekick advertising the beer, and he'd down... Uh, he'd be knocking it back. Well, shirt, a whole, whole glass. Right. Well, he's doing this every other inning. <laughs> By the seventh inning, he can hardly talk. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Harry Carey? You know, put put oh, him yeah. in there. <laughs> that was, yeah, that's definitely an old guy moment. Yeah, 
Was he drinking Blatt's, or we don't know? I could have been. Yeah. Could have been. I, I really can't. I, I really can't remember. But so anyway, back to the so so it wasn't until after law school that things started getting right. Getting a little wacky. It was fine for a while. You know, drank socially and in social situations, except that the, the situations began to multiply. Number one, and I decided to apply my trade as a uh, trial lawyer. Hmm. And the trial bar, as just sort of a condition of employment, mm-hmm. was literally saturated with alcohol. Really, everybody was a hard drinker. What do you think? What do you think that is? I mean, just you, a couple you, of reasons. Number one, it's it's win lose. You have a lot of pressure on that, and it's win lose all the way through a lawsuit as you build up to the actual trial itself. Then you go to trial, you drop everything that you're, you're doing back at your own office, and you're in court for multiple days at a time, sometimes multiple weeks. Hmm. And there's a lot that goes on and a lot that goes wrong and a lot that goes right. And you have to adapt to all of it. There's a lot of pressure. So the safety valve is, is alcohol. Yeah, I was talking to a guy um, who works at the Tribune. And he was telling me that it was it was just part of the ethos of being a newspaper man. Oh, yeah. To be a hard-drinking, mm-hmm. you know, Royco kind of guy, you know. Is it the same with trial lawyers, that yes. same ethos? <clears throat> Very much. And there was a lot of ritual <clears throat> built up around it, too. There were watering holes where lawyers would get, uh, gather and congregate. Out here it was the Oaks Club in Woodstock, right mm-hmm. across the street from the old courthouse. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when that closed or, <clears throat> or uh, the, uh, the courthouse opened, it moved over to the courthouse in. I, the imagine, I imagine many deals were made at the Elks Club. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember waiting for a jury verdict in one case. One time we, we went to the, actually put the jury out at about 3.30 in the afternoon, and 11 hours later, they still had not reached the verdict. And so when we brought them in to find out what was going on, and they were hopelessly deadlocked at 6.6, and they wanted to go home, um, the mistrial was declared. Every, every participant in that trial including the judge, was absolutely hammered because we had been drinking for 10 or 11 straight hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's just the way that's the way that's business the way was. was conducted. That was the way it was. And you went to the, you, at the end of a case, you had to buy the bailiff a drink. That was code for we're going across the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the various stages where important things were, would happen in a lawsuit, you celebrated the wins and you... Commiserated over the losses, and it's just the way that's just the way it worked. Yep. Yeah. So, where along that trail did things change for you, and how like how did they change? Well, along that trail, <clears throat> they started to change with the uh, the afternoon drink, hmm. drinking at noon. Um, it used to be a special occasion when you would have an, a cocktail at lunch. Mm-hmm. After a while, the day was lost without one. Mm-hmm. And the idea of having you know two or three, my drink of choice was scotch, and mm-hmm. I liked Rob Rice. So two or three Rob Rice at lunch was not unusual. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then go back to the office or oh, go yeah. back to oh, sure. court or go wherever you, wherever you went. One of the things I did notice was that I had to work so much harder when I, in the afternoons after because I was laboring under the influence of alcohol. Yeah. It was harder to do things which I could do naturally in the morning. Yeah. But that really didn't stop me. Huh. Yeah. I can imagine that it would be kind of make you a little, make you a little, you know, 
pouring over the paperwork, trying to get the trying to get everything squared away, and you're, you're well, keeping, kind of... keeping the th- the type on lines <laughs> straight across the paper. Was... So, but at that time, when you're doing the th- the, the three Rob Roy lunch, mm-hmm. um, are other people doing the same thing? As far well, as you know, sure. I wasn't I wasn't drinking alone. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't then. There wasn't any thought at the time to that that there was a difficulty. No. No, none whatsoever. Looking back on it now, was there? Sure. <clears throat> because I would be looking for lunch with people who drank the way I drank. Yeah. Who would, who would give me the opportunity to drink. And by giving me the opportunity, I could drink without guilt. Mm-hmm. Shall we have a drink? Sure. Yeah, I'll have a... You know, right. You can have another one? Yeah. Okay, well, I will too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. How were <clears throat> things? Uh, how were things in the rest of your life going at that time aside from your professional life like how 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 are things going with the family how are things going you know not well. socially not well not well no, no. <laughs> was was there were certain opinions being expressed about it that i didn't agree with but they were being and, expressed and nonetheless. would you like to share what those opinions were why do you have to drink so much <laughs> <laughs> why do you do it so often why do you do it all the time uh, and the other thing was that my kids um, basically uh, tuned me out. Mm. I've got three daughters, and uh, I would hit the threshold at night and coming into the house, and they whatever they were doing, whatever, wherever they were in the house, they all, three of them just turned their backs on me and fled to their rooms, and I didn't see them again all night. Why? Um, I mean, why do you think they did that? They didn't want to be around me mm. when I was drinking. Why not? I was unpredictable. Like, unpredictable, like you might get mad or you I might, might... I might get mad, fly off the handle. Yeah. Or Not fun to be around. No, no. Or I, like like most alcoholics, it could be you could fly off the handle or you could slip into the I love you man stage. Oh, yeah, with the yeah. movies. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that could be just as <clears throat> just embarrassing yeah, for a teenage or, girl, or I worse. suppose. Yeah. Yeah, the worst. Yeah, because did they say anything to you ever? No, the kids never did. They never said anything. They just the only time they did was when I was in treatment. They had a uh, a drill where we were going four nights out of five at the Lutheran General, mm-hmm. and the first two nights were family nights, and then oh. the second two nights were <clears throat> patients only. And during the first week, we went to the two family nights, and then I went to the first of the patients only night. I was finishing up dinner in the commissary or the cafeteria, and um, somebody came and looked me up and said, Dr. So-and-so, the, the psychiatrist, wants to see you. Mm. So I padded down the hall to go see the psychiatrist and walked in, and there was a psychiatrist and my wife and my three daughters. Mm. And they proceeded to tell me, mm. bluntly and directly, the way they felt about the way I drank and what it was like when I was drinking. Mm. and more telling what they were like when I was drinking, what their reactions and their emotions were. Mm-hmm. And that was a real eye opener. And what did they? What what were what was their emotion? Were they afraid well, the, of you? Uh, the kids. Uh, one was um, she felt sad because it was such a waste. The other one hated me mm-hmm. because of it. And the third one, the youngest one, was afraid of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your wife? She was just disgusted. She was ready to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That hits you like 
uh, a truck. Well, I thought I was going to walk in and talk to the shrink about why I was there and what I was going through at the time mm-hmm. and any difficulties I was having at that moment in time with not drinking because I was in treatment, I wasn't drinking, it was outpatient, so I had to kind of report in what I'd done during the day. Right. And all my drill had changed, if at all. And I walk into this room and the gang is there. Mm. And I had to face up to that situation. So what do you think? I mean, was this uh, was this the psychiatrist's idea? Was this the, your family's wishes? Well, it, it was or? a psychiatrist's idea because they were prepped. I mean, they were yeah. prepped to say what they said because right. they, they said it distinctly and they sat me down. This was a mini intervention. Right. They sat me down and told me, you know, you're going to listen. You're not going to have any comment. Right. You know, listen to these four people, and they're going to talk to you about right. about your drinking and about how they feel about it. Right. And you're not going to say anything until it's all over with. Yeah. So it's you know sort of like right. walking into uh, the prize ring with Ali on the other side, and you, your hands are tied. Yeah. <laughs> with pow, pow, pow. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. And see, the, here's here's the other thing. I, I mean. I'm a treatment guy, so mm-hmm. I know the kind of guys that that get that get the treatment that you got. <laughs> right. And the guys that get the treatment that you got are the guys. They're the harder cases. <laughs> they're the they're the ones that, that have a hard time getting it in their head. So well, yeah, we have to, I, I had that hard time. Yeah. We you know you have to bring in the big. But you have to bring in the big guns. Big guns. You to, know, it's the old story about the mule. You know, you, you have to treat it with patience and understanding and kindness. After you hit it with the uh, two by four to get its attention. <laughs> See, well, you you know, I mean, you're you're what would be commonly called a smart alcoholic. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, you I've were been, a smart I've, one. I've been you? called that in the program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, even the, even in the program. Oh yeah, Bob uh, Bob K, Peace Bob. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> said one night uh, directly to me in a meeting, he said, "I'm you know I, I don't want to be mean to you or anything or yeah. I wish you bad he said but it really makes me feel good when a smart guy like you has to come in here to get help <laughs> from guys like me <laughs> yeah yeah well I, I I really you know I mean smart can kill you so oh yeah you know I mean thank God for that that whole intervention so so okay so let's let's go back so things weren't so things weren't great at home we got that. They were less than great. Uh, we they were less than great. W- w- wifey was like headed for the door, and mm-hmm. the kids were locking themselves in their rooms. Yeah. Well, my last uh, the day after my last drink, uh, the the day before had been the end of a five day drunk that really was just completely out of control. Mm-hmm. And I got up and I walked into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and the sight that I saw really kind of disgusted me. Hmm. Uh, The family was gone. They weren't anywhere near the house that night. Uh, I had gone to bed alone and fully expecting that, you know, they would be gone and I'd be getting a call from a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also expected that my major client would call me and tell me that they would muddle along without me. And I thought my partnership was probably going to be over relatively quickly. Yeah. Because things were... Things had spiraled out of control. I'd spent the entire day in a tavern. Yeah. When I I got ready for court in the tavern, I went to court drunk. I went to the tavern afterwards. I didn't get home until 9 or 10 o'clock at night. They weren't happy to see me. I left and went to another tavern. In addition to the total disgust and revulsion that I had about the way I looked and the way I was living and what was happening, I had a fear. It was based on the day before. I couldn't leave. 
the Jindal. Hmm. That really had me. That had me scared because I'd seen guys like that. Hang on, because I'd spent a lot of time in bars and I'd seen the guys who couldn't leave. And right. I saw them and I, you know, I, I saw their names in the death notices and, and it scared me and I saw what they lost. They had no family, no wives, no job, no money. They were panhandlers and bums. And I saw myself actually becoming like that if I continued to drink. When you looked, when you looked in the mirror, you, you're talking about looking in the mirror that day. What, what did you see? Ooh. Literally, uh, a bloated, red-faced, bleary-eyed mess. Hmm. Just awful. I had about 30 pounds of bloat on. My face was bright red. <laughs> My <laughs> nose was swollen and it was red. I had a treatment guy that I kept in touch with after I got out of the Lutheran General who would call me every year. And he told me how he knew how I he told me how he knew I was sober. He said your your nose shrunk. <laughs> Did they call you Rudolph in treatment? No, but a boom. I wasn't alone. So I, I had no distinction there. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was other, there was other red noses. There, there were with a couple you. of red faces in there besides mine. Yeah. Yeah. So so that that uh, day in the tavern, the realization that you um, you could be one of those guys that yeah. couldn't leave. Or one of those guys where, you know, I don't know what bars you drank at, but, you know, the ones that, that close at 4 o'clock for two hours and mm-hmm. then open up at 6 and the guys leave and they stand in line. They stand in line. <laughs> they stand in line for, for the 6 o'clock opening and they're the same guys that left at 4. This wasn't a 4. They didn't have any 4, four o'clock licenses in Woodstock, but midnight during the week and 2 o'clock in the weekends is more yeah. than enough. Yeah. More than you, enough time. You can get you there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so... You could have been one of those guys. So was it that that experience and that look in the mirror that got you to treatment, or was it was it did it take more? I kind of stumbled out expecting to be in a, in a an empty house, mm-hmm. and uh, my wife and children had returned from wherever they had gone. I don't know don't know where it was at the time, and I, to, the, to this day I don't know. Mm. And um, <clears throat> they were not very happy people mm-hmm. and um, my wife said to me if you don't do something about your drinking this is over we're done and you have to do it now and I knew at that point that the usual promise to do better or to try to control it or whatever other phony promises I had made in the past wasn't going to cut the mustard this time. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't going to work. And so I thought about the worst drug that I had ever known. <clears throat> and it was that same Bob K, Peace Bob, mm-hmm. Peace Bob, who had gone through Lutheran General. And he was a guy who drank anywhere from a quart to a half a gallon of whiskey a day. He was a violent drunk. When he went, when he went nuts, it took you know multiple calls to multiple police departments to get him to calm down. Mm-hmm. One of his last drunks, he was, uh, oh yeah, his last drunk, he was on the uh, strap to a gurney in the violent mental ward at the Elgin State Hospital. Mm. So I thought about him. Mm-hmm. And he'd been the Lutheran. Great nickname for him. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So peace. He, he ended every talk with the word peace and then the sign. Mm-hmm. So I thought if I called Lutheran for that treated somebody like Bob, they wouldn't bother with a guy like me. Uh. 
I and you were thinking. I was kind of a singles hitter. You know? I just, uh, I really expected my wife and family to be gone, but they were still there. So things were maybe not as bad as I thought they were. Right. So the the con man in me was, you know, coming back, and um, I decided I would call Lutheran. And I first of all called, thinking that they wouldn't have time to see me, or they'd be full. Unfortunately, they said they had time to see me, and they weren't full. Hmm. And I came to the conclusion that well, what they would do given the fact that I really wasn't, uh, my drinking wasn't that big a problem. They would give me the recipe for controlled drinking, mm-hmm. uh, instructions, a little card, mm-hmm. and send me home. And about halfway there, I came up with the bright idea that, well, maybe they'd keep my wife and send me home just clean as a whistle, and I could just go back to doing what I wanted to do. <laughs> and keep her because she was crazy? Right. Yeah. Well, keep the kids, too. Mm-hmm. Straighten them out. Well... An hour after I made, two hours after I made the telephone call, I'm sitting in this office with this guy who had, I always called him the wolf man. He had thick head of hair and a full beard, and he looked just like the wolf man. And he had half a nose, which he never had surgically repaired because it reminded him of his last drunk. <laughs> and the wolf man and my wife are making decisions about getting me a bed in the jitter joint. <laughs> and I was having none of it. <clears throat> and I, you know, shucked and jived and bobbed and weaved for the next 15 or 20 minutes until they finally got the message that I'm not signing myself in. So I made a commitment that I would not drink for the rest of the week. This was a, <clears throat> a Tuesday. I would not drink for the rest of the week. And the following Monday, I would start in the uh, the outpatient treatment program at Lutheran. Mm-hmm. And I did. Yeah, skeptically. Oh, yeah, because I went in for the interview, the initial interview, the intake, uh, when I got there that night, and they were talking about me being an alcoholic, and even my family was upset because they didn't they didn't like the idea. They didn't like the label. Right. I didn't like the label. They, they asked, just wanted you to stop yeah. drinking. Or did they want you Not to so really much. just kind of like cool, cool it? Just cool it. Just cool it. Cool it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <clears throat> they asked me why that, why I had such, uh, such trouble with the idea of being an alcoholic. And I, I remember telling them, I said, well, it's obviously, it's a, it's a, that would be a confession of weakness. Hmm. And I, I can control this. Right. <laughs> yeah, so you thought. So I, I just was just thinking to myself, I wonder if anywhere in the world there is like one of those cards with a recipe for moderate drinking. <laughs> oh, like I a mean, laminated I'd, cheat sheet. Yeah, I'd like, that, I'd like to see what is on that. Yeah, you put it in your... Oh, you got one? Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll, 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 get, we'll get to that after the show then. Yeah, I must have uh, lost mine. But yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be fantastic? The guy comes comes to the treatment expecting it. It'll be five hundred dollars. Yeah, here's your here's your <laughs> normal drinking card. Do you remember the guy, the Wolfman's name? No, I do not. I do not. Yeah. Okay. He was about. He was short. Yeah, I think it was probably yeah. Jack Clark. Actually, you're right. Yeah, it was Jack Clark. Yeah. Now that I read, yeah, because he's I, you knew him. I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. And he 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 went on. To, to do a bunch of halfway houses and do all kinds oh, of things. Yeah. He was quite a guy. Yeah. He was quite a guy. He's gone now. He's dead. But, R. R. Wolf yeah, Man. the Wolfman strikes again. Right. <laughs> 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 oh. I forgot completely until you reminded me, but, yeah, yeah. Was, he was the guy. Yeah, he was very – he had a whole whole thing going on Yes, there. he did. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so you're in, tre- so you're in treatment reluctantly, mm-hmm. and uh, you know what? What I think we'll do is that's a good place maybe to take a take a short break because we've got a little we've got a little music okay and Chris will introduce the music and and then 
we'll come back and maybe pick up. We've kind of covered the what it was like mm -hmm. and what got you there. Maybe we'll talk second half about okay. the recovery and, sure. uh, and on from there. How's that? Uh, All right. Great. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to listen to a, a hot track uh, from the Grateful Dead <laughs> called Deal. I don't know what kind of deal they're talking about, but maybe you can pick that out of the song when you listen to it here. <laughs> yeah. And we'll be back with you in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening.
Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed our music. And if you're just joining us, this is episode number 81 of Recovery Internet Radio, broadcast live and direct from Straight Stuff Studios every Sunday night. Our number, once again, if you didn't get it earlier, is 323-792-2977. Please feel free to give us a call anytime if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or I was going to say complaints, but you know you can save those for our website. You can go to recoveryinternetradio.com and just shoot us an email. You can have opinions, though, right? Opinions are good, yeah. yeah opinions opinions are okay. Complaints, yeah, we really don't want them. Yeah, you know, yeah. we'll take yeah. what we can get. You know? yeah. um, but we'd love to hear from you. So, again, recoveryinternetradio.com. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter. And Mr. Atwater puts together a lovely email. Pictures. I mean, it's nice. You you know, it, you can save it. You know, it's, it's beautiful. But... And all and all fair, honestly, it, you know, it's it's a good thing to pass along to somebody else. Uh, it's got a good description of what the show is each week, so we'd love for you to share that with somebody that you think might enjoy it as well. Now we've got some friends that you're going to talk about, right? Some These of our friends, friends. with a couple, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> We've got a friend or two out there. Um, we would like to give a shout out to our uh, our, our buddy Bob Harper. At uh, you know he is in a lovely band called Double Take. They do uh, they do a lot of fun stuff. They're a cover band. They uh, do a variety of fun music from classic rock to contemporary hits from Michael Jackson, Sinatra, Journey, James Brown. Anyway, uh, check them out at DoubleTakeChicago.com. They've got a gig coming up. That's what the kids call it, right? The gig. Uh, they will be coming to Porter's at Bowes Creek. That's in Elgin, Illinois, Bose Creek Road, October 4th from 8 to 11. So check their website, doubletakechicago.com. Um, you will also get a, a treat. You'll hear them playing Brick House right away. So make sure your speakers are cranked up for that. <laughs> Anywho, um, and uh, I'm going to pass that over to, to, to Rick, and I think he's got a he's got a couple of announcements of his own. I do have one announcement. Uh, will you also talk briefly about sidekicks? I would love to talk briefly. You want to do that first? Sure, certainly. We, uh, we're, we're directly involved with a, a volunteer youth mentoring program. It's a, it's a completely free service. Uh, the idea is we pair uh, kids in need of uh, some leadership and, and some positive relationships up with people that are, uh, you know, that, that have a reason to give back, that, that maybe they've been through some tough times in the past or, you know, they're just interested in, in, in helping others. And, uh, you know, it just provides a positive influence and a, and a good role model for for some of these boys and girls that may have uh, gotten into some some issues of their own or, or just need a just need a good role model in their life kind of picking up where big brothers and sisters leaves off here so uh check us out at sidekicksmentoring.org or you can also you know facebook twitter sidekicks mentoring uh either or for that yeah. as well so yeah check us out yeah check check us out we also need mentors yes we do um and then i just want to mention one quick thing on um i'm sort of doing this off the cuff but on october 16th that's a wednesday evening at McHenry county college there will be an event called The Community Responds to the Heroin Crisis. And it will be, uh, there will be um, uh, some information. There'll be a panel discussion. There's some very uh, boots on the ground kind of, of people on the panel, people that can really answer questions about what's happening with the heroin issue in, the, in this area and other areas. Uh, people from law enforcement, judiciary, education, uh, health, public health, re- you know, treatment, recovery. There'll be a couple of good recovery stories. 
Um, and it should be, I think, a very enlightening evening. So we hope that anybody who wishes to support that issue, uh, do something about it, uh, step up as a community member, will be there on Wednesday evening, October 16th. Uh, the doors open at 6.30, and the event starts at 7. It'll go till about 8.30. And that's at uh, that's at McHenry, McHenry, at County, McHenry County, County College, and Excellent. there'll be flyers and things out, and you'll probably read about it in the newspaper. But we hope that you will will come out to support the community. Excellent, and meet our local celebrity Rick Atwater. Yeah, radio talent. Right, mm-hmm. and I'll be there. So for heaven's sakes. Okay, so back to our show tonight, and Mike C. Um, and I guess we got to we got to uh, treatment and. Right. So let's go from there. What? How long were you in there, and what happened after that? Well, it was a, a four a four week outpatient process. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was five because uh, I went in in December, and there were some days off for the holidays, uh, Christmas and New Year. So mm-hmm. my sessions actually went on for five weeks. Mm-hmm. But after the first couple of days, they delivered the other message that the other shoe dropped. And that was that in addition to coming there four nights a week, on the weekend I had to attend at least three AA meetings, which meant Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. In addition to going to treatment four days a week. Four days a week. So that covers Thursday. The whole week. Well, I drank every day anyway, so I might as well do something about it that way. So, yeah. So that was my first introduction to AA. I made the uh, the call on Wednesday morning to the hotline and got the a woman by the name of Emma on the other end mm. from McHenry. And she must have thought, I think, that um, at the time I was in a, in a crisis and I was in a bar and I had my hand around the, the drink. And, mm-hmm. and what she did was she said she would call me back and she gave me the names of two guys later who were going to come over. But then she wouldn't hang up. She kept me on the phone until there was a knock on my door, and there was at the office. Mm-hmm. And, uh, did you know what she was doing, or did she was she? I, I figured it out later. Yeah, I didn't know what she was doing at the time. She, she was just a skillful, pretty, pretty jittery. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I, I, I appreciate. I, lo- I, I loved her dedication to the uh, yeah. to me and to my recovery. And uh, <clears throat> Don F walked through the door, and uh, a short time later, Clay C followed him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I talked to them, and uh, they took me to um, my first meeting at the uh, the world famous Friday Night Men's Fellowship meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and that was your that was the be- that was the that was the beginning of the, the beginning end. of the the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. And you didn't uh, you, you didn't drink again. No. You, you had you your last drink was before you went into treatment. My and last never... drink was on December the eighth. And I started um, treatment on the 14th of December, and on the 17th I went to my first AA meeting, hmm. and I haven't had any drink since. So uh, what? So let's talk about what started happening to your life from there a little bit. Well, did the family end up staying or leaving, or how did that go? Well, the family ended up staying for a while. Um, Linda and I had uh, problems other than alcohol, yeah. and they finally came to a head about eight years uh, sober. Uh, I was eight years into the program, mm-hmm. 
and uh, we uh, we separated and later divorced. Oh. Okay. Um, by then, the kids were mostly out of the house. Um, I think the uh, my separation occurred in, in the um, summer before my youngest daughter's senior year in high school. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. So from from the time that you first started going to meetings, what 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 happened to your life? Well, it got a lot, got considerably better. Mm-hmm. Um, the the early going, it was uh, <clears throat> kind of difficult to make AA a regular part of my life. Mm-hmm. It was it was unusual. Um, and at the time, and, and until I actually made a career change, I was the Woodstock City Attorney. Mm-hmm. So I had to go to a lot of evening meetings, and right. and going to AA at night was an additional night out away from the family. So. After a while, there began to be a little bit of family resentment to the fact that he'd gone again. You know? Right. We got we got the, the city drinking, meeting, the city council meeting. Still not here. Right. So. Right. How did how did you handle it in in terms of your you know professional life and your? I mean, did people know? How did you feel about that? What was the, what was that like? To a certain extent, I I, I tried to keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. But when you're a big drunk in a small town, they know. Uh, there's a big, yeah. there's a big change. There's a big change. Like bars are going out of business. Matter of fact, matter of fact, the town tab laid off a guy and um, <laughs> the courthouse in. The manager of the courthouse in ran into me at a uh, party one night, a house party one night, and asked me what they had done wrong. Why had they offended me? And I said, you, you haven't offended me. I'm still a customer. And they said, well. We monitor our charge accounts, and you're one of our better customers, uh, but your charges have dropped off to next to nothing. We figured we'd done something wrong, and I said, well, you haven't done anything wrong, but I quit drinking. <laughs> and he looked, he thought for a second, and then he went, oh, God. Ninety <laughs> percent of the bill was alcohol. Yeah. 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 So, in other words, you 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 didn't talk a lot about it, but it wasn't. Uh, and then my, phys- my my physical appearance changed. I shed almost automatically shed a ton of weight. Yeah. I was medicating uh, for high blood pressure with my internist, and I was on massive beta blockers. It was still higher than a kite. Mm. Um, it dropped seventy points on both ends of the line within a week after I quit drinking. Hmm. Because um, I was going to see this guy on a weekly basis, he was that concerned about me. And then we started modifying um, my medication. And then he said, "If uh, you add a little exercise to this process, you could probably go off the medication altogether," which I did. Hmm. So I, I uh, stopped medicating for high blood pressure. Hmm. And about um, I quit in 1980, so 1981 or 82. Wow. So the red, so the red nose, the red face, the, red the nose, weight, the red face, blood yeah. pressure, right? Yeah, all went away. That's a pretty good. Uh, that's a pretty good little testimony. Oh yeah. I mean, really, all things considered, <clears throat> it's feeling better. I mean, there's just no no comparison to the way you way you feel. Yeah. The drinkers say, you know, when you uh, if you when you wake up in the morning, that's the best you're going to feel all day. <laughs> well, quite frankly, you know, it's pretty damn good. Yeah, it feels good, and it feels good all day. I don't have anything to be physically or mentally worried about. So you mentioned that you uh, changed professions. What what happened? Well, I was a practicing lawyer here in in Woodstock for 34 years, mm-hmm. and in 1997, I made an application for to be appointed as an associate judge, which was accepted. Hmm. 
and I was appointed an associate judge in 1997. And then in 2002, I was elected to the circuit bench, mm-hmm. and I'm there to this day. Hmm. So, and have has th- have has it changed? Has your attitude changed about how you, you know, how you carry that recovery into the into your professional life? Everybody knows. I make absolutely no secret about it. <clears throat> it Why uh, is that? I mean, some people would be like. You know, skitchy about it. I was in the in the early going because I was afraid that um, there was a stigma attached to being an alcoholic. Yeah. The town drunk sort of a thing. Yeah. The scarlet letter kind sure. of approach. And I thought there might be some <clears throat> attempt by people who were competitors of mine and not necessarily friendly to me, who might t- tend to use my <clears throat> alcoholism as a way to steal business, as it were. <clears throat> sure, or hurt you. You know. I mean, professionally, you're, it's a, you're in an elected position, right? No, it was a point. Oh, well, as a judge, but I'm yeah. talking about as a lawyer. As a lawyer, in the early sure. going. Yeah. So I was a little bit <clears throat> cherry about it, and then um, there were people who would, you know, talk to me about <clears throat> the fact that I didn't, didn't drink anymore, or people who would say to me uh, how glad they were that I quit. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, this hardcore four or five who still remember some of the antics, and they, you know, <laughs> they won't they won't let them go. They will retell them to anybody who will listen to them with great relish, mm-hmm. with great relish. But I, when they do, when they do lapse into that, I always caution the listeners that uh, remember the statute of limitations on this has run <laughs> <laughs> by by more than a few years. Oh yeah, now yeah. Yeah. So what what changed your mind about it? I think the fact that I was such a public drinker and a public drunk <clears throat> that everybody really kind of knew without talking about it that I was in recovery. Yeah. And so I just, after a while, I just made no secret about it. See, here's the thing. I mean, some people have, um, you know, they're okay if you say, I quit drinking. Mm-hmm. But they're they're less okay if you say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Right. So you could have got away with saying I quit drinking and you would have been fine. You would have been a hero. Right. So but you went the other you went the other step. Right. So there's something a little bit more to your disclosure than just I quit drinking. Oh yeah. Well what is that? That I have a disease. Yeah. And yeah. alcoholism itself is a disease. Yeah. And you're not afraid to let people know, which no, not I, at all. I mean I think is, is really admirable for a pub for a person as public as you are. To do that, everybody doesn't do that. I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, recovering people in public positions. Well, I know there are. So do you. The interesting thing is when I applied to be the associate judge, um, I went around to each of the circuit judges who would be voting on the application, and to talk to them one on one in private to find out if they had any questions about it. Do you have any questions or concerns about the booze? Mm-hmm. At the time, I was. About 17, 18 years sober. And what I really wanted them to vent if they had to or ask any questions that were on yeah. their mind. Get it on the table, sure. Yeah. And one of them said to me that he didn't think, <clears throat> given the length of time that I'd been sober, the length of time I'd been in recovery, that it was anything they needed to be worried about. As a matter of fact, it was probably a strength. Hmm. So, <clears throat> in, in some respects, the attitude toward alcoholism had changed, at least uh, on the judiciary. Because they see a lot of the wreckage. Yeah, they see a lot of the non the non recovery end of things. Right. So they would know what it would look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good. I you know I mean I think that that's really a good that's really a good thing. 
Um, like I want to switch switch it up here a little bit because I want to make sure that we get a chance to talk a little bit about some of the things that you've done mm-hmm. professionally as a result of your recovery, the the lawyer's assistance stuff, and I'm sure okay. lots of other lots of other things along the way. But let's talk a little bit about the lawyer's assistance program. What is it? What's your part in it? What, what yeah. Uh, the Lawyers Assistance Program is a, a not-for-profit corporation organized initially by the State Bar and the uh, Chicago Bar Association, basically to address what people at the time thought was the unaddressed problem of severe alcoholism in lawyers. <clears throat> and it was basically an anecdotal perception. It was accurate, but it was a- basically anecdotal, based upon the, the fact that there were a lot of uh, things happening to lawyers who were drinking or drunk, <clears throat> um, there were a number of watering holes in Chicago that were lawyers' bars uh, where on any given day, at any given time, you could find lawyers drinking. Same thing in Lake County, same thing mm-hmm. here. So the, the idea was, could there be a, a program available that would help lawyers buy lawyers? Mm-hmm. And the, uh, they did two things. They organized this corporation. And then they contacted uh, the folks at Lutheran General for training for people to deal with the problem of addictions, both drugs and alcohol. And at the same time, went to the Supreme Court and said, we need some help. We need some protection here to get people to trust us. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court <clears throat> passed a, an amendment to the Rules of Professional Conduct, which, <clears throat> which made any conversation or disclosure made to anybody in an assistance program uh, confidential, as confidential as lawyer and client. Right. So there would be no Himmel reporting. There would be no um, <clears throat> no disciplinary actions that would arise out of coming to L- LAP. And say, and say what Himmel reporting is, because Himmel is a uh, a rule based upon the, the name of a case involving a lawyer named Himmel who failed to report um, <clears throat> unethical conduct in a colleague that he witnessed in the course of some transactions in, involving his client and the other lawyer's client. And he himself was disciplined for that failure. Okay. So the the Supreme Court has said if you if you come across in an unprivileged situation, you won't violate a privilege by reporting it. You must report any unethical conduct you see in another lawyer. But it doesn't really arise in Himmel if they're talking to us because that is confidential. So you're but protected from yeah. being prosecuted right. for your you know. You wouldn't be required to report. Right. Yeah. Well, somebody calls up and says, I've got a drinking problem. And you say, fine, come on in. I don't pick up the telephone and say, hey, Joe Blow called me to admit his drinking problem. Doesn't right. happen that way. No. No. The program wouldn't go far. If it, no. If, and lawyers understand that. Right. And it's a program by lawyers, uh, composed of lawyers for lawyers. Yeah. So they're more likely to talk to a lawyer than they are to a stranger or somebody outside the profession. You cloak that with the confidence aspect of it. It makes it a little easier to, to pick up the telephone and make the telephone call. So you were telling me that a, a lot of lawyers are they don't they don't know they don't know about it or they don't know that it's available. Well, are they more we would, now? We, we more more so now than when yeah. it started. Yeah, it took a long time to mm-hmm. to get that uh, that knowledge uh, out in the public. I was trained as an intervener a long time ago, and for the longest time, didn't have anything to do. They didn't call me. Mm-hmm. But here in the last five or ten years, I'm getting calls all the time. So there's there's more people who know. And uh, interestingly enough, 
given the rate of alcoholism among lawyers, the calls that are so-called self-referrals mm-hmm. are now out, out, outnumbering the ones where people are calling about somebody else that they want to get help to. Okay. So, yeah. so the, the, edu- the public education or the, amongst the profession has come a long way. So say, say what an intervener is. And, and yes, yeah, what is that? Well, an intervener is uh, somebody who conducts a, a process that basically intervenes in an individual's drinking. In the LAP model, it's a three-member panel that will work with family, friends, colleagues, partners, whomever, uh, who are uh, close to the uh, to the drinker who is in, in, mm-hmm. in trouble mm-hmm. or uh, is about to be in, in, tro- in trouble. And rehearse them in a to confront this and the drinker's problem mm-hmm. as they see it and how it has affected them in a non-judgmental, non-accusatory way. So it would be what people would would right. kind of stereotypically assume an intervention yes. would look like. That's right. what you do. Yeah, and you have <clears throat> generally you have the spouse there and the children. Yeah, uh, a partner. Yeah, maybe clients. Yeah. I had one one time actually intervened on a sitting judge, and uh, we had five lawyers and the family. Mm-hmm. Five lawyers who practiced in front of this judge and the family. So it was a, a very it was an interesting session. I'm just kind of chuckling to myself. It would take it would take at least five lawyers to handle a judge. I mean, <laughs> just just the the weight of the whole thing. Is that yeah, the ratio? Yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing about LAP is that always on the intervention panel, there is a judge. Oh, okay. And the interventions are conducted in the courthouse. Ah, okay. And the reason for that is that even though many people who may not know it and everything is confidential, what you do is you play on the mind of the alcoholic that now my drinking is in my workplace. Sure. And, uh, sure. You, you play on that to, to make them appreciate the seriousness of where they are and the fact that they need to do something about it. And from from what you know, from what I know, from what I understand, the this particular type of intervention is not just not just personal; it's also professional. So oh, yeah. you've got the weight of basically that person's job. Exactly. Yeah, they're not they're they're. Maybe even more than their job, their their ticket to to uh, practice. Do you have that? Sooner or later, something will happen that will put their license to practice in jeopardy. Yeah. Usually, what it usually is is it involves client money. Mm-hmm. Either they Somebody's take it and spend the it on booze, or the yeah. the accounting becomes very slipshod and negligent and it's mm-hmm. inaccurate and it has to be 100% accurate all the time. Mm-hmm. And when those things happen, they take a really dim view of it. So it may be that the ticket's on the line or it may not be. It could be that there's could just be. misbehavior, but the but the job is, a, the job is part of the intervention. Right. The, um, <clears throat> the job, typically, in our experience, real serious problems in the profession are the last thing that happens to a drinker. Yeah. Hopefully, we we are getting them at a point in time which is well in advance of that, so that the license is never truly at risk. Right. And the whole idea behind an intervention is to get everybody together and sort of raise the bottom for a drunk. Yeah. Because a lot of times they won't come into treatment uh, in the normal way until they've lost it all. So when you say raise the bottom, what do you mean by that? Well, every alcoholic who comes into uh, into the program. 
reaches a point where they can't go on or feel they can't go on anymore. Mine was that morning looking in the mirror. Right. Uh, I contemplated very briefly the idea of suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> that bottom <clears throat> it can be avoided. You don't have to get to that point uh, with an intervention. You so can do you it s- earlier on. It could have yeah. been done five years ahead of time. So you're surrounding them with the information, right. with the uh, with the facts about what they've, how they've affected you, the family, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. So give, give, do you have an example of a, of a successful LAP intervention that you've been involved in? Uh, yeah, a couple of them, mm-hmm. a couple of them. Uh, a guy from, um, there was a guy over in, in Lake, uh, Lake County, uh, or no, the one down in Kane County, went, did two interventions down there, one on a, on a uh, gambler mm-hmm. and one on alcohol. Mm-hmm. And this, the drinker had, um, <clears throat> we only had four people in the intervention, his brother, his wife, his son, and his daughter. Mm-hmm. And the daughter was a little dicey. I thought she was just on the outside of being too young, mm-hmm. but I included her anyway. And I had her asked, told her to write down what her reaction would be to her father and, and then be able to read it back to him and tell him what it was and use your notes as a checklist. Mm-hmm. And she said, okay, she would do that. And she came in and she had her notes written in a pink turtle notebook. And she read them and she flipped them and she read them and she flipped them. And the guy went into uh, Rosecrans mm-hmm. shortly on that day, mm-hmm. a couple of days later, and we don't usually check up on people, but he had signed a release with Rosecrans, and Rosecrans was reporting regularly to LAP. Mm-hmm. For some reason, they were reporting to me. And when he actually came out of the inpatient treatment program 30 days later, his lead counselor called me and said, now, I don't know what it is you guys are doing over there, but whatever, you're, whatever it is you're doing, do not change a thing. It mm-hmm. works, and it works well. Mm-hmm. We got somebody in here, fresh from your intervention, who was ready for treatment and ready to recover. Mm-hmm. But he was also, from what we could tell and what he told us, he had also built up all of those lawyerly defenses that we would never break down. This guy on his own had virtually no chance at all to recover. Mm-hmm. So what you did was you broke them all down, and, and he was able to to successfully treat the program. As far as I know, he's still sober. Oh, that's really, I mean, that's really good. I was just thinking to myself, a lawyer, excuse me, a lawyer would be the last guy I would want to intervene on because not only would he have the normal normal package of denial and defense defenses, but he's a trained arguer. Right. What could be worse? <laughs> what could, who, who, let me think of somebody who could be worse well, to get into an argument with about their drinking. There was one that I was, I was trying to convince friends of mine from out of town to come in and spend the weekend, and uh, they told me later that afterwards, after the phone call, my friend, uh, friend's wife, Becky, just felt horrible. She felt really bad about it. And, he, and her husband said, why? He's a trial lawyer. That's what he does for a living. <laughs> he argues. He argues. Well... That's good. Well, you know, I mean, it's really good, you know, to um, and I can I can see the connection, you know, between your recovery and then the way the way you're giving back professionally, mm-hmm. I think is is really great. And I 
I, I always ask this question, and we're probably almost out of time, so I will proceed to ask it. But in in every just about every show, I, I would like to close with you tonight by asking if there are, are any particular thing or things that you would tell uh, a, a lawyer in who's in you know who's in trouble or who has who has begun to think about maybe drinking might be an issue. What would you say to him? What would you like him to know in case he's listening tonight? Call LAP as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Call the hotline. If they're not there, they'll call you back when they are. Mm-hmm. If it's an emergency, call 911. But call LAP as soon as you can. Call me. I'm in the book. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. We used to we used to publish a list of um, of contacts in the uh, in the bar local bar uh, newsletters. We haven't been doing that lately, but the 800 number is the best resource. Do you know what it is offhand? I do not. Okay, but it can be found. Virtually anywhere. There's the website. It's on the website. Lawyers, lawyers, lawyers Assistance lawyers, Program. Lawyers Assistance Program. The number is there. And is that just a state thing or is that national? Well, there are Lawyers Assistance Programs in virtually every state. Okay. We were one of the leaders in setting them up. Okay. One of the first states to do it. But most of them now either have them or if they don't have them, the few that don't are in the process of setting them up. Okay. So... They can go to the lawyer's assistance web, website for, right. this, for right. Illinois and, and get the get the 800 number yeah. and call. Exactly. Okay. Well, I appreciate um, you coming out tonight. Glad and, to do it. Uh, and bringing your lovely wife. I'm glad you came. And uh, you know, and I think it was really uh, an informative uh, show and, and good for people to hear and uh, pass that information along. So, again, thank you for coming out and. Uh, uh, I guess uh, thank you, Chris, for engineering and doing your thing. And to our listeners and our mm-hmm. studio mm-hmm. audience, we will email out our reminders for next week's show, uh, usually later in the week, Thursday or Friday. Um, and remember to check Recovery Internet Radio. That's recoveryinternetradio.com for all our archive shows and to sign up for our email reminder list. Um, we don't know where you're because we're internet. We don't know where you're listening from, so it's it's great to uh, have you yeah. go to our website. Then we can find out where you're listening from. We want to know. We want to know. Hey, you know, just really quick, I, I can I just throw that in there? That lawyer assistance program. I mean, you know, use the, use the Google if you need to, but it comes up right away. It, the number is easy to remember, though. It's one eight hundred L A P one two three three. From, okay. from the website for LAP Illinois Lawyers Assistance Part. Yeah. LAP so if you're if you're in need, then please, please do that. Thank you for grabbing that. And Thank as you. always, live today, love yourself and your neighbor. Together we'll trudge the happy road to destiny. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And we'll see you at eight o'clock next Sunday night. Thanks for coming. <laughs>